There's no doubt that playing a game of cards can be very exhilarating. Oh, now you need an eight. That would be sick. And very profitable. Eight, eight! And Mike wins! It can also be mystifying. Every card in the entire deck becomes the five of hearts! Playing cards have been around for centuries. And I really mean it, centuries. The precise origin of where and when they were created might depend on which search engine you use. Some say the Tang Dynasty in the 9th century. Others say Egypt had a version in the 11th century. India, Persia, Belgium, Spain, Italy, they're all in the mix, too. Their popularity has endured the test of time. And perhaps no time in recent memory was that more true than in 2003. But it might not be for the reason you think. To all the men and women of the United States Armed Forces now in the Middle East, the peace of a troubled world and the hopes of an oppressed people now depend on you. This is DIA Connections. In the Iraqi freedom in 2003, DIA played a lead role in the intelligence community for providing all source military analysis and information. And that included the identification of and background on all of the key figures in the Iraqi leadership and regime. And this deck of cards is one example of what we provide to soldiers and Marines out in the field with the faces of the individuals and what their role is. How do you get all of these coalition partners on the same page at the same time and get them to move in the same direction? Well, if you have a deck of cards, you can do that. Here's this gentleman that comes in as a reservist. He's like, hey, I got this idea. I'm so grateful that I didn't just roll into the, ah, oh, hey, ah, that's too hard to do, right? Because it, that was super hard to do. We'd never done that before. Every local TV station was there. It was on radio, it was in print. And we ended up with people lined around the block. It was like a circus or carnival, a festival. I guess it was a festival of people coming through to get these decks. It really was fun. Thanks for joining us for this episode of DIA Connections. This one's called the Iraqi Most Wanted Deck of Cards. So Iraqi freedom in 2003 was the U.S. intervention in Iraq, which was to go in and essentially depose the regime there, which was assessed to be a threat to the United States. That's DIA chief historian Greg Elder. The regime was led by Saddam Hussein, obviously a known dictator who had opposed the United States for decades. And of course, we had fought a war against him just a decade before in the early 1990s. On my orders, Coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. One of the problems that we had was identifying all of the leaders of the regime. Their names were difficult to pronounce, and there's a lot of them. So DIA developed a unique thought process in terms of being able to identify them more clearly to the average soldier and person on the ground. 200 playing card decks with the names and pictures of key figures in Saddam Hussein's regime went from the print shop at DIA headquarters to troops in Iraq. They made a big impact then and when the war was over. 
We caught this man, Abid Mahmoud, Saddam's presidential secretary, important guy. He was so important that he was the ace of diamonds on the deck of cards. The Iraqi Most Wanted deck of cards clearly stands as one of the most significant pieces of DI's history and heritage. So picture this, April 11th, three weeks after the war began, Army Brigadier General Vincent Brooks from Central Command is standing at a podium in Doha, Qatar, in a room full of reporters from around the world, briefing them on the latest developments in the war. The key list has 55 individuals who may be pursued, killed, or captured. Then, he reaches down for his notes, and instead of holding up a few pieces of paper, he has a deck of cards. Like the same kind of cards you have lying around, somewhere in your house. And this deck of cards is one example of what we provide to soldiers and Marines out in the field, with the faces of the individuals and what their role is. No one saw that coming. And then General Brooks told the reporters that the cards were destined for the troops. Uh, we don't have enough to distribute here, uh, but we can certainly make them available for you to look at if you'd like to do that. The press wanted to see the cards, but after a little bit, the public affairs officer came out and said, I don't think so. We've just spent the last 10 minutes talking with the general, and he's not giving up the pack. We've only got one pack. Could we that didn't go over too well. That is an incredibly inept thing to do, to offer that up and then not we have, have them available. The it is unbelievably inept. And that was the beginning of how the Iraqi Most Wanted deck of cards became almost as sought after as the people printed on them. The public unveiling caught everyone by surprise, including Han's mom back at DIA headquarters. And that's really saying something, since he's the one that came up with the idea in the first place. All of a sudden, I had people running into the room I was in, and they said, Hans, Hans, you got to turn on the news. You got to turn on the news. You're on the news. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm on the news. This may not be good. <laughs> that's Hans working in the Middle East Analysis Division at DIA. We'll get back to him shortly, but first, here's how his boss reacted to that press conference. I was at home and I fell off of my bed <laughs> when I saw General Brooks raise his hand and show the deck of cards. I, I was shocked because I'd never thought about a public-facing intelligence product <laughs> being part of uh, something that you know, a general officer would show on national TV. I am Deidre Allen Light, and I was the Iraq Division Leadership Team Lead in 2003. Thanks so much for joining us, Deidre. I want to start by asking when did you first hear about putting names and faces on a deck of cards for the troops? Second Lieutenant Hans Mum had come on board as a reservist, working on the weekends to assist us in the Iraq Leadership Team. And he pitched this idea to me. He explained that his grandfather had served in the United Kingdom during one of the world wars, and they utilized cards to show silhouette aircraft, enemy aircraft, so that they could learn what it looked like in the sky. That was very interesting to me. He said, you know, we've got all this information in a database. Why don't we use the cards to really communicate to the ground troops, to that person on the ground that's going to be interacting with these people. And I thought, that's brilliant. That's something really out of the ordinary for the agency to do. Why did you think it had potential to be something special? I had seen the Marine Corps become more innovative to get their products to the ground troops over the years. 
And this reminded me of that. It reminded me of an innovative way for us to communicate with the end user. We've never really done that before. Up to this point, my time in the agency really had been towards the decision makers, the policy makers, the Pentagon. But how to reach that soldier on the ground, I was really grateful for Han's idea. It was a challenge for us as intelligence professionals. At first glance, everything in Baghdad seems perfectly normal. The streets buzz with everyday activity. But just over the border, there are only 7,000 American and British troops on standby. For the moment, it seems, the American threat is just theoretical. But for how long? Deidre, would you talk a little bit about what it was like at DIA before the war began? It was a very intense, a very uncertain time. Nobody knew the exact date that was very protected. But ultimately, we knew we were marching in this direction for quite some time. Han's mom was only with DIA a couple of months before Operation Iraqi Freedom began on March 20th, 2003. Here he is with DIA historian Paul Isaacson. Do you recall when we went to war and how did you learn about that? And did that create a plan of action for you? We were actually told by the director of DIA, uh, Admiral Jacoby, he called a town hall and everybody went down to the auditorium. And he looked at the audience and, and he said, today is the day that we go to war. The attack came in waves, cruise missiles, followed by the F-117 stealth bombers with so-called bunker-busting bombs. Their target, a bunker believed... Intelligence is often included in field manuals. Those could take weeks to produce. And they can be a little, how should we say it, dry? Yeah, that's a nice way of describing it. Hans had another way. A field manual is is what we kind of make a little bit of a joke in the enlisted uh, ranks. A field manual is fancy toilet paper. Most of the time, the field manuals are not overly helpful, and they're not a really good read. <laughs> Let's just say that most of the time, it's a little on the boring side. That's when he had a light bulb moment. How do we disseminate this information and how do we do it quickly and engaging, being able to engage the, the soldiers? And then we said, well, wait a minute, you know, if we think about this, what do we do when we're sitting on field duty and, and we're not doing anything? We play cards. So the troops could then get trained and they wouldn't even realize really that they were being trained, right? Because as they're playing poker, as they're playing speeds, they're seeing the people that they need to figure out where they're at. And they're already getting trained without even having to train them. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's so clever, so simple. That's, that's a beautiful thing. There was more gunfire around Basra today as British troops moved inexorably towards the city center. We have to remember we're in a coalition. This isn't just the U.S. trying to do this. How do you get all of these coalition partners on the same page at the same time and get them to move in the same direction? Well, if you have a deck of cards, you can do that. Who picked the 52 names? Deidre and the rest MEA4, we actually got together and basically said, okay, you know, does this make sense? Does it not? Once I approved the idea that Hans provided, it was a matter of figuring out the semantics. 
I wasn't a card player. I didn't understand even the order of the cards. So Deidre, for years, the story around here is that because the print shop didn't have any cards laying around, someone had to run out to a 7-Eleven to get a deck to use as a prototype. And that same person put the list together for the cards, but didn't even know how many cards there were in a deck. So come clean. Are you, by any chance, the person who thought that there were around 70 cards in a deck? Yes. <laughs> that, that is true. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and in fact, we had a much longer list. <laughs> so I, I was trying to convince the team, can't there be 75 cards? <laughs> really have a longer list than this. <laughs> it was very difficult to uh, put the cutoff line <laughs> above 55. Deidre wasn't exactly a card shark, but she did have a few aces up her sleeve. And that was a team of skilled analysts and reservists. We wanted to have a logical way of trying to figure out who were the uh, most important and then who are just important. So what we looked at was, uh, of course, the ace of spades that was assigned to, you know, Saddam. And then secondarily, uh, you've got, uh, you know, aces and then kings. Well, when you start to look at who is the key leadership, if the ace of spades is not there uh, running his troops, so if Saddam either runs or wherever he ends up, who is going to be calling the shots? Well, that would end up being Uday and Kuse, his sons. At some point, did somebody suggest making Saddam Hussein the Joker, but you guys went a different way, right? Tell us about that. So yes, there was discussion on whether Saddam should be made one of the Jokers. I was not really keen on that idea because I didn't want to make a person into a joke. That wasn't really the point behind uh, this deck. There wasn't going to be a lot of humor behind this deck. It was there for a reason I didn't want to get into the idea that we're calling a, a leader of another country a joke or a joker. So what I did was I said it makes more sense to make him the most infamous card in the deck, which is the Ace of Spades, and then take the jokers and actually make those into instructions for the troops. Ah, yes, the jokers. Turns out they became a very integral part of the story. Remember the press conference earlier? And the intent here is to General Brooks holds up this deck of cards and actually is uh, uh, taking questions uh, from the uh, media pool. And one of the funny questions during that uh, initial press conference was Your deck of 55 most wanted, um, does that include the former information minister? Because every pack needs a joker. The information minister said that they won the war within the first day. Well said, Jeff. Well said. Well, there are jokers in this deck. There's no doubt about that. And of and course, the answer was no, because the information minister wasn't a high value to us. In Iraq, they were impractical jokers. But in the States, specifically in Cincinnati, Ohio, the jokers were wild. My name is George White, and back in 2003, I was the vice president of marketing for the U.S. playing card company in Cincinnati. I read this story about the Iraqi most wanted playing cards. I'm like, well, that's kind of a cool thing because I knew U.S. playing card had a long history with the military. This year of war, like the year past, will find America's fighting men pitting their youth and courage and strength 
against an enemy whose power is still to be broken. During World War II, the OSS and British Special Forces worked with the bicycle card brand to hide maps within playing cards that were delivered by the Red Cross to prisoners of war. To these men, who must live on what supplies the enemy can give its prisoners, the few comforts contained in Red Cross packages are a gift of incredible value. Certain decks had specific cards that when immersed in water, you could peel away the layers and find a map. I didn't really think it would have any impact on our business. I just thought it was a way to get the military and people in the United States more interested in supporting the military to get these these guys that were identified as bad guys by the DIA. At the Pentagon, officials were getting so many requests for the cards that they made the PDF files available on the internet. It seemed like a good idea at the time, but of course, that meant that anyone could download the templates for free. But that didn't mean they owned them. Turns out, the DIA didn't even own them. So when the DIA released the deck and they released it on the PDFs that everyone could see, there were the 52 cars, but there were also two jokers in the deck. And the jokers had information that was related to the deck. And those jokers used Hoyle imagery on it. And Hoyle was a trademark of the U.S. playing card company. So that's how we were able to claim intellectual property rights on what was the authentic deck that the DIA had created. Did you get the legalese? They owned the rights to the jokers. Therefore, they owned the cards. And you don't need to be a VP of marketing to know when you're holding a winning hand. But it helps. We printed them to sell to our retailers because it was just a shock to me. Our retailers wanted to carry it. I mean, we're talking about retailers like Walgreens. I mean, you know, the biggest retailers in the country were wanting to carry these things because the public just was crazy about wanting these decks of cards. We thought, you know, with the interest in this, maybe we should let consumers come and buy them in our store. We had this little store in our office. So we're like, well, we should sell them out of there because I think people would be interested. So we made a deal with a local charity to make it so that all the profits would go to charity. And then as the day got closer, we're like, you know what? This is not going to work in our store. So we decided we should get a tent to put it up in our parking lot in order to accommodate what we thought were going to be pretty large crowds. And we got a bunch of people to to work out there to to sell these things. We decided to limit it to 12 decks per person. Again, my thinking that you try to make it so that there's some scarcity that makes collectors happy. Also, frankly, I was worried about running out of decks. And unfortunately, I don't remember the exact number of how many decks we sold, but it was in the tens of thousands of decks. And talking to the people... As they went through the line, it was just really cool because everybody was excited. There's the collectible angle. I think there was also the part that the American citizens were like, well, this is my way of showing support for the military and that I can be part of what's going on over there by having these decks. It was like a circus or carnival or a festival. I guess it was a festival of people coming through to get these decks. It really was fun. Clubs, diamonds, hearts, and spades. Han's mom knew soldiers would take to the cards and start referring to them by suit instead of name. But what he didn't know was that the media would, too. The U.S. is sure about this man, Ba'ath Party official Samir Abd Al-Ajiz Al-Najim. He's the four of clubs on that deck of wanted regime leaders. Everyone wanted the cards. But of course, it wasn't for themselves. It was for an old army buddy, or their parents, or a teacher they had in high school. Demand reached a fever pitch, and getting a pack wasn't easy, no matter who you were. 
Here's Hans again with Paul Isaacson. So there was a gentleman named George Bush Sr. Uh, I guess he I guess he used to to run something called CIA, and uh, he used to be a president or something. And he had actually called and said he wanted a deck of cards. Well, then it just so happens that his son George W. Bush uh, was <laughs> president at that point, and uh, later that afternoon, every single deck of cards in the entire uh, DIA was rounded up, and George W. was headed to the Pentagon for uh, a meeting. We ended up getting them all together, and I hand delivered them over to the Pentagon to make sure that not only George W. Bush had a copy of them as the uh, commander in chief, but uh, when his father, the former president and uh, director of CIA, who had asked for a copy of them, uh, he also received a copy. I did not know that story. Thank you for sharing that. That is very cool. Both Hans and Deidre were able to see firsthand the results of their team's efforts when they went to Iraq. Here again is Deidre Light. She was the Iraq Division Leadership Team Lead in 2003. I was very excited to meet people who had the cards in their possession and really kind of carried them as part of their their utility belt, right? I mean, it was just everything was kind of part of how they were doing their job every day. That was exciting because that was the end result. That was that end user. And really being back here at headquarters, it was hard to know the impact of what you were having. I couldn't track which individuals got these cards. So to actually be there six months, nine months later and see them being used, that was really exciting. I brought over a thousand decks. I actually handed them out myself to coalition troops as well as our troops and then we ended up having uh, some extras and we had Iraqis on the base, uh, you know, working with us on the base. And they asked if they could have a deck of cards. And I asked them, I said, well, why would you want a deck of cards? And they said, sir, two reasons. One, this is history. We're no longer under a dictator. You have freed us. And they said, the second reason is, is if we find or know of where these people are, we will tell you. And for them, the easiest way to be able to tell us was to hold up the card. I give tours almost every day in the museum. And the, there's only one place in the entire museum where I typically mention how a small, clever, motivated team can really make a difference. And it's when I'm standing in front of the deck of cards display, right behind Saddam Hussein. This, to me, is an incredible example of that. What do you think about that? When we started this, we didn't think that far down the road. We really didn't. We were looking at more of how do we do the mission? How do we play a part in this? How do we play our part in this? How do we support the war effort? And how do we do that in the correct manner? We never imagined uh, to the point where you literally can go into almost every military museum in the world and the deck of cards is in there. It is humbling, very, very humbling to be a part of the team and to be a part of history. It's certainly an honor to have any part to have played in that. To me, it's an opportunity to thank 
Here's this gentleman that comes in as a reservist. He's here less than a month. He's like, hey, I got this idea. I'm so grateful that I didn't just roll into the, oh, hey, ah, that's too hard to do, right? Because it, that was super hard to do. We'd never done that before. You know, every threat is asymmetric. There's all kinds of challenges that we face in the international community. There's not just one way of doing things. Inclusion of ideas. The deck of cards stands for that. One of the most wanted terrorists in the world is dead. Izzat Ibrahim al-Duri was Saddam Hussein's number two, the king of clubs in the U.S. military's deck of Iraqi fugitives. As of 2015, every single one of the Iraqi most wanted deck of cards has been killed or captured. The king of clubs was the last card in the deck. Want to see the cards? Check out our video series, The Historians, on YouTube or DIA.mil. As always, thanks for listening. And remember, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to DIA Connections.